Thank you, Father, for the Son. Great idea of yours. We appreciate it. Uh, Thank you for your goodness. Uh, When you shine your warmth upon us, no matter what the temperature is outside, you are good, and you are righteous, and you are holy. We want to follow you. We confess that we are sinners, that we're not holy, that we mess up. But we trust in you and we're leaning on you and asking you to come and help us to be a faithful church. Uh, Teach us today from your word in this regard, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 8 through 11. It's the last book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Revelation verse by verse. And we're at chapter 2. Chapter 2 and chapter 3, if you remember, are, are these different short letters to seven different churches where we can see what was going on in the churches of that time of the first century. But also, these kind of problems are faced by the church throughout the centuries and I would say especially towards the end of time. And so these are very relevant throughout history, but especially now, so we're going to look at this second church, the church in Smyrna, which we're calling the Faithful Church. This is a good one, okay? It's one, you know, one of two of the seven churches where he didn't have anything bad to say about them. So, you know, there's something going on that's good here, all right? Uh, but I thought we'd watch a little video clip first. They change it. I don't know. See, the Starfinders are good because you can change all the pieces. But I never liked the Galacticons. You only get one robot, and they don't come with a vehicle. Plus, you can't take them underwater. And if you do, they... Nice.
say you were in? Oh, I'm in computers. Computers? Just saved you a trip to the gym, son. You remember that movie? Big. Okay. I mean, it's it's all about this kid who grows up before he's supposed to grow up, and uh, but he stays a kid. And you know, and you know, I think perhaps there's something to that. We don't want to lose our you know, fun and excitement and so forth. But there's also something that has happened, especially since then in our day and age, where it seems like we're in that Peter Pan syndrome, where we don't want to ever grow up. And and everything's just all about entertainment and play. And I think that's not good, because life is not a perpetual picnic. Uh, there is a spiritual war going on, and this world is not our home or our final destiny. The seven churches recognize or miss this truth to varying degrees. The church at Smyrna got it. It recognized this world is not our home. Bad things are going to happen. We have to seek to be faithful stewards of God. Uh, it was a faithful church in the midst of persecution. So we can learn a lot from this church. Let's read our passage. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Izmir, the third largest city in Turkey, is built on the rubble of ancient Smyrna. Uh, It was the most beautiful city in all of Asia, according to the Smyrnans. (laughs) Apparently they thought it was nice. It was a seaport on the slopes of Mount Pegasus. It was the center of Caesar worship and the birthplace of Homer. Uh, The church at Smyrna was poor and persecuted, but faithful. So let's see what we can learn about this particular church. He starts out in verse 8, and we see that Jesus is characterized by his deity and his resurrection power. Remember, in each of these many letters, they always begin with something about Jesus, so that we learn something about Jesus taken from the vision John had in chapter 1 of Jesus. And here we see he specifically says, uh, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. And so first of all, Jesus is the eternal God. He's called the first and the last. Now, the first century people would have known because they knew their Bibles that in Isaiah, Isaiah 44, 6, Isaiah 48, 12, it specifically says that Yahweh is the first 
and the last. So this is very clearly making a statement. Jesus is Yahweh. He is God, the eternal God. In fact, uh, in Revelation 22, verse 13, in the same book, it speaks of Yahweh, as, of God as being the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And so it's very clear what John is seeking to do, just like in his gospel, to reveal that Jesus is the eternal God. Now this idea of being the first and the last, uh, the protos and eschatos, uh, highlights his eternal nature and authority over time. The heretic Arius in the 4th century was famous for saying about Jesus, there was a time when he was not. The book of Revelation disagrees. <laughs> he, has, he is eternal. Time is in his hands. Now, the Smyrnans were a persecuted church. They needed to know this. He knows about the Smyrnans' situation, and he cares, and he's in control. And for us, whatever we're having to go through in our life, Jesus, as the first and the last, knows about our situation. He cares, and he is in control. So we see that he is the eternal God, and he is the resurrected Lord. This title emphasizes his humanity and authority over life and death. He was raised from the dead. Only he can bring true comfort to a church experiencing persecution and martyrdom. He knows what they're going through. He was persecuted himself and was killed, but he came to life. He was raised from the dead. And by the way, this is powerful. I don't know if you can just picture this, okay? You don't just raise someone from the dead with a little power, right? Okay, and he was raised from the dead with a new resurrected body never to die again. That's the kind of resurrection. We're talking about serious power here. Now, I emphasize that because I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 1. Here is a promise to us. Ephesians chapter 1, the, this is an, a, a prayer in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 18 through 21, that we can learn from. And this is how Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So he starts out with this prayer. I pray that, you, that the light turns on, that you understand, that you see this wonderful hope that you have. Now, it's a hope that comes in the future. It's a glorious inheritance that's going to, going to come to us. He's praying for that, but also, he goes on, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. He's praying that we understand that he has this resurrection power and he wants to work through us with his resurrection power. Now, this is not like a carte blanche kind of thing that you get the power, all the power you want to do anything you want to. This is, he is the Lord, he's in control, but he wants to use us. Not just a little bit. We're talking with resurrection power kind of deal. 
That's what he's saying. In order to defeat the enemy. Look at what he goes on to say. He exerted, uh, I'm sorry, verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Speaking of the demonic realm is what he's talking about there. Because we are in a battle, we're going to see this as we look at the rest of the our passage to the church in Smyrna, that it is a a battle that we're facing. We can't do it in our own strength. We need His power, this resurrection power, but He is making it available to us for whatever we have to go through. Only He can bring true comfort to a church experiencing persecution and martyrdom. He, too, was subject to slander, persecution, and death, And he overcame it all. He won, and we will win too. I was thinking and reminded of the uh, great missionary Jim Elliott, who was killed in 1956 by the Aka Indians. He and several other guys went down there to share the gospel with these people. He was killed for his faith specifically. But his wife, Elizabeth, continued to reach out to the Akas and led them to Jesus, including the man who killed her husband. We can't do that in our own strength, but that's exciting, isn't it? Wow. That's surrender to the Lord. In 1999, missionary Graham Staines and his son, they're from Australia, were burned alive by a militant group of Hindus in India as they were ministering there. His wife, Gladys, stayed and continued to share the gospel and pray for her husband's persecutors. I could go on and on all day long with stories like this because this is the church. This is the faithful church. This is our calling to be a faithful church like the church at Smyrna. So, verses 9 and 10, we see the church is commended for its faith and perseverance. It's not rebuked like most of the other churches. It is commended for its faith and perseverance. It says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. The church is commended for its faith and its perseverance. It says that the church at Smyrna was weak and poor. They were nobodies in the eyes of the world, but heroes in God's eyes. They were weak and poor. I I went to a a conference, and in one of the seminars, everything else was great about the conference, but one of the seminars, one of the, the, the guys said, his whole point of the seminar was that we needed the elites in order to reach the world. That the, the common people can't do it. We needed the elites to reach as the catalyst for church growth. And I'm listening to this, and he's sharing some stuff, and I just 
put my hand up. He said, excuse me, but, you know, as I look at the church, the church grew the most, the fastest, most rapidly uh, in the first three centuries when it was just the nobodies. <laughs> you know, and, I, and, I, and I, so it kind of almost seems like the opposite of what you're saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and that's, but that's what we see here. These guys, they're nobodies, but they're, they're making a difference. Uh, in uh, Daniel Aiken's book, he quotes Chuck Swindoll. And this is, he wants you to imagine here what's going on in this passage. Imagine yourself sitting among the gathering of God's people in Smyrna on a cold morning before sunrise. A small lamp-lit room houses the remnant of beaten and beleaguered church members. The once lively crowd of Christians now displays obvious gaps where men and women once sat. Some have fallen away under the persecution. Others are simply gone, arrested, exiled, or executed. Some of you risked your lives just to meet this morning to pray, to sing hymns to God, and to read from Holy Scripture. All of you are outcasts, desperate for a word of encouragement from the messenger sitting in your midst. In the dim light, the pastor unrolls a scroll and begins to read with a calm, quiet confidence. Whispering and shuffling in the room ceases when you hear from whom the message comes, the risen Lord himself. The entire group seems to hold its breath when Christ begins his commendation. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Jesus wrote this to them. He's writing it to us. They were poor, they were weak, but they were God's chosen. James 2, verse 5, brings out a similar thought. He says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? What's interesting about this is he adds that idea of those who love him. If you want to know whether you're in or out of the kingdom of God, you ask two questions. First of all, have you repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone as your Savior, outwardly expressing that faith in baptism? And then secondly, has it made a difference in your life to where you love God? You love him because that's the evidence. That's the fruit of a true faith. And this is the kind of people God chooses, the nobodies of the world. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Here we see something very similar. Chapter 1, 26. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. (laughs) The elite. (laughs) 
Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The church of Smyrna was weak and poor, but God used it for his glory. Uh, But also the church at Smyrna was attacked by Satan. Specifically, it starts out, it says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. These were fake Jews persecuting them. I call them fake Jews. That's what Jesus said, John 8, 44. He spoke to the Pharisees. He says, your father is the devil. That wasn't like a a nice thing to say, was it? How to win friends and influence people, right? You know, that's a... Your father is the devil. Well, anyway, that was Jesus. Uh, So these were the Jewish people who had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They completely missed it and then began to persecute the true church. Now, this is not anti-Semitism. They wanted to reach the Jewish people. And in fact, the Bible makes it very clear that the Jewish people, their eyes are going to be opened up and enlightened in the end of time and come to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So he's not finished with them yet. But here we see that they were persecuting him simply because they were puppets of Satan, the synagogue of Satan. Uh, And so we see this, uh, they were attacked here, but the devil is the real enemy. Not the Jewish people, not the other political party, not anything else. The devil is our real enemy. He says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, that 10 days, that is not to be taken literally. It's referring to a short period of time, meaning it's not going, there will be an end to it. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to suffer, but there is an end to it. That's the point that he's making there with that. Uh, with that reference. But the focus here, what we need to see is it's the devil who's doing this. Now, obviously through people who are his puppets, but he's the one who's actually doing it. The devil is our real enemy. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. We dare not miss this truth of the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 6, he speaks of who our real enemy is and what the real situation is that we must recognize. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Remember that resurrection power that we talked about in the prayer, okay? Be strong in the Lord. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is a great spiritual battle going on right now. Do you believe in the devil? 
Now, as Christians, we're supposed to say yes. But I want you to ask from by your actions, by your life, do you believe in the devil? Because if you live your whole life as if there is no spiritual battle and it's all about just having fun and playing, You've missed it, and you will suffer the consequences. We need to recognize here the devil is out to kill us. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy us. If we don't take this seriously, then all of a sudden something happens to us, and we're like, why did that happen? We live in a messed-up world with an enemy who hates us. That's the reality that we dare not miss. He is our real enemy. And by the way, therefore, we can anticipate suffering. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. We, we can anticipate that. In this life, there's a curse on the world. Remember that? Back in Genesis, a curse on this world where everything we do seems to be in toil. Why do little things happen so often where you stub your toe or whatever? It's because the world is messed up. Daniel Aiken says, A word about the future of the church, specifically in America, is in order. Those of us in the West must be prepared for the jarring truth that just as in Revelation 2.9 and Smyrna in the first century, those who oppose and reject Christianity are going to oppose and persecute us. Not only will they say we are wrong, they will say we are bigoted, dangerous, and evil. We will be slandered as anti-choice, anti-diversity, anti-gay, anti-inclusion, anti-tolerance. We can anticipate economic boycotts, governmental restrictions and social ostracism. Eventually more severe persecution and even imprisonment will likely be our experience. Of course, this is already true for followers of Christ around the world. And it is coming to America. Just don't know when. Be prepared. We can anticipate suffering. But what should our response be? That's the question we should be asking. Not whether persecution and suffering is going to come. It is. But how do we respond? Our passage made it very clear how to respond. First of all, do not be afraid. Verse 10, don't be afraid. Don't worry. Worry is a useless emotion. It serves no good purpose at all. Don't worry. I love that song. Don't worry, be happy. Okay? You know, it's it's a stupid song for the world to sing. (laughs) They have every reason to worry. But it's a great song for Christians, right? And that's what he's saying here, okay? When bad stuff starts happening to you, when the suffering, whatever shape it takes, don't worry. And then secondly, be faithful. Be faithful even to the point of death. He says, so don't worry, be faithful. That's our response to the suffering and persecution that will come. And then he challenges the church. The church is challenged by God's reward and his promise. He says, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Better translation, I will give you the crown of life. 
Okay. I don't know why the NIV did that in this particular instance because uh, in another passage with the same exact phrase, it translates it crown of life. So, you know, every translation has its quirks. Anyway, whoever has ears, to let him hear what the Spirit says to the church is the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And so we see here, first of all, God's reward is the crown of life for faithfulness. James 1, verse 12, as I said, uh, even in the NIV, it translates it right here. Uh, James 1, verse 12, it says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Same situation as what's going on in Revelation, right? Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. There's that idea of those who love him. Do you love Jesus? Do you really love him? That's a question you want to ask because if you can't answer that question with an affirmative, yes, of course, I absolutely adore God and Jesus, then there's something wrong to those who love him. They will be faithful. They will receive this crown of life is what he's saying. Uh, Faithful, it says, even to the point of death. In the first and second and third centuries of the church, there was a serious problem because of the persecution because some of the people within the church lapsed. That's the word they used. They would fall away. Uh, they, were, they would be demanded to offer a pinch of incense to the emperor and say, Caesar is Lord. As true and faithful Christian would not offer the incense and they would not say Caesar is Lord. They would say Jesus is Lord. And then they would suffer accordingly. But some, under the pressure, fell away. And so that was a big problem. What are, what, how are we to understand what happened there? Okay, Matthew 10 Verses 32 through 39, Jesus gives us a very strong warning that at least in our own lives, we need, and don't, you don't need to judge other people. That's always silly, okay? But in our own lives, we want to take Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 39, seriously. He says, Jesus said this, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And it's not that God wants us to be fighting with our family, right? He goes on and explains what he's talking about here. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. This love has to be loving him supremely. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's even our children. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Those are sobering words from Jesus himself. I think of Polycarp. Do you ever think of Polycarp? You're like, what? Polycarp was this guy in the 2nd century. He was actually born in the 1st century, 
lived a very long life, and they caught him as a Christian at the end of his life. He was 86 years old, okay? And they said, just offer a pinch of incense and say, Caesar's Lord, you're 86 years old. And he said, 86 years, the Lord has been faithful to me. Why should I not be faithful to him at this moment? And they burned him alive. Polycarp. Now, Polycarp, very possibly and probably, was the pastor of this church at this point of the the letter because he was the bishop of Smyrna into the second century starting in the first century. And this is around 95 AD when this was written. Isn't that cool? He was faithful. Polycarp. You should name your kid that. Polycarp. They'll think he's a fish. God's reward is the crown of life for faithfulness and God's promise is to rescue us from the second death. He specifically says, whoever has ears... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And so a big question is, what is the second death? John explains in Revelation 21, verse 8. He says, But the cowardly, The unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. And he's speaking of people who live this as a lifestyle, unrepentant lifestyle. They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. He's referring to hell is what he's saying here. In a very real sense... Salvation is fire insurance. Now, oftentimes, that's all the only way we preach it. It is far more than that. It is all about a personal, incredible relationship with God that we get to experience for eternity in His presence when He comes back, okay? So in a very real sense, it's far more than fire fire insurance. But listen, it is not less than that. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, Do not fear the one who can kill your body, but fear the one who can kill both, destroy both the body and soul in hell. Speaking of God, is hell real? And what is it like? Jesus taught more on hell than any other biblical writer. And so he took it seriously. We may not know everything about it, but we do know that God is fair and just. And as Christ followers, we must believe in hell because our Lord believed in hell. It is described as horrific, eternal, conscious torment of the wicked. And I don't say that glibly. My heart breaks over this. So many people want to soften the impact of this dreadful truth when it should drop us to our knees and push us to compel people to come to Christ. 
Jesus taught a parable in Luke chapter 14 and verse 23. It says, go into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. That word compel is anagazo. It means to compel, force, or strongly urge. It's that serious. We can't just play games all the time. We live in a time where it makes all the difference of eternity how we help people. And so we've got to take this seriously. Charles Peace was an atheist, a thief, and a murderer. And he got caught. And it says, on the morning of his execution, Peace ate a hearty breakfast of bacon and calmly awaited the coming of the public executioner, William Marwood. He was the inventor of the long drop. Talking about hanging. He was escorted on the death walk by the prison chaplain who was reading aloud from the consolations of religion about the fires of hell. And from other stories that I've read about this, is he was just kind of going through the motions reading to this guy because that was his job. And peace, the atheist, burst out. Sir, if I believed what you and the church of God say that you believe, Even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it, if need be, on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. Wow. He didn't receive Christ. He died at the age of 46. God's promise to us, if you receive the good news of the gospel, you won't be hurt at all by the second death. Now, in all of this, in persecution, we can respond. Whatever's happening in our life, we can respond in one of three ways. First of all, Arrogance and retribution. Now, by the way, that is the default mode of the sinful nature. Okay? We get persecuted, like, well, I'm better than you are, and, and we start, you know, bashing them and this and that, and we can, so we can respond in arrogance and retribution. And that's bad. That's not the proper response. But secondly, we could also respond in compromise and cowardice. I'm just not going to say anything. I'm just going to live my life in peace, let everybody else go to hell, and just as long as I have a nice day. Compromise and cowardice. Or we can share the love, the truth in love. Be faithful to share the truth in love. Let's be faithful like Smyrna. That's the church of Harvest Fellowship. Let's pray. I invite the worship team to come up as we prepare our hearts uh, for a, a sobering passage. The good news that 
we have this hope in us that someday all of this mess is going to be taken away. The bad news that we very well might experience persecution and suffering. But God calls us to be faithful. So Lord, we ask, help us. Every one of us confess we are weak, we are poor, and we need you to strengthen us. We need you to help us to be more loving towards the lost, to recognize that they're simply acting as puppets under the, their king, the Satan, that they don't even know about, and they need to be rescued not beat over the head. They need to be prayed for. Help us, O oh God, to see our place in this world and to reach out in love. And when people hurt us, to don't respond back with hurt, but instead just keep on loving. Oh, we need your strength to do that. But I also pray for those who are suffering even right now. Perhaps it's not because of witnessing or whatever but it's just because we live in a messed up world and they're hurting right now I ask that you would call your saints to gather around and help your people and that you'd lift them up help their head get above the water and take in your wonderful fresh air and see your blue sky and realize that you have their life in your hands if they will just simply walk with you, you will be faithful to them. Help us all, Lord. And use us for your glory to advance the kingdom. We ask in Jesus' name.